Amen. Thank you, God. Certainly we've seen the great I Am in the book of Mark, which is what we're studying right now as we watch demons run and flee, and all, their cool, all sorts of other cool things happen as we encounter this incredible person from Nazareth. Welcome here. My name is Jeremy. I'm glad you're here to worship with us today. Um, if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a long time, thank you for coming. We are glad you're here. Uh, I want to begin with a story about, uh, well, actually ask you to visualize this. This is a sort of a directed visualization here. Don't worry, we won't get weird, no yoga or anything like that. But this is, just use your imagination for a moment and ask yourself the question. Think of a big decision that you either have coming up or that you've experienced in the past. What is a big decision? doesn't matter if you're young or further along on this scale. Wherever you're at in life, think of a big decision that you have coming up. Got it? I'm talking about the kind of decision where it sort of wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about it. You get up in the morning, it's the first thing on your mind. You sit down in the evening, all of a sudden that thing comes right in front of you once again. It consumes your thoughts. Maybe it's because it's going to have a long-term impact, maybe because it involves family or occupation or your hobby or whatever it is. Think of that thing that sort of drives you crazy that you really wish it was resolved, but you just haven't quite landed on yet. Got it? All right. When you're making that decision, my guess is, if you're anything like me, you want to be sure and for certain, for sure and for certain, that when you make the decision, you know you've got it right. So you're going to do your homework. You're going to go and research it. You might talk to your friends. You might crowdsource it on Facebook or whatever and say, hey, do any of you guys know any, or what do you think about, or what's your experience with? You might even go online and start reading some reviews. Say you're purchasing an automobile. You're probably not just going to walk onto the lot and say, hey, that one looks good, and drive away. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to read some reviews, you're going to do your research, you're going to make sure you're getting a good deal, you're going to familiarize yourself with the market, because let's say that car is $10,000, this is the only cash you have. You are not going to throw that money out the window, and then all of a sudden say, whoops, I can't get it back, and I bought a lemon. No, you're going to do your very best to come to a spot where you're fully confident that you've made the right decision. In your wisdom, I think you can do a pretty good job, that you can actually come to a well-researched, well-balanced decision where you make a good purchase, or you make a good investment, or you determine a good plan, and you go forward. You don't know everything, and you don't have limitless resources, but at the end of the day, having done your homework, having done the planning, having done the research, you can probably come to a pretty good point where you're confident and what you're doing going forward. If that is the case with you and I, when we have an important decision to make, that we're capable of researching it and coming to a pretty good spot, how much more so, how very much more so with God, with He who is unlimited in resources, in almighty in power, in all-knowing in knowledge, how much more so Can God, in coming up with a plan, 
determine the outcome, and guarantee good results. Today's passage in Mark chapter 3 is really going to show us just that. It's Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and following. And what happens is this. You're going to see three things. Here's a slide. Here's a slide of what you'll see. You're going to see Jesus calling and creating disciples. This is the thing that he's doing. He's going to call them and he's going to create them. And he will do so specifically and effectively. He will do so beautifully and perfectly. And ultimately, he will do so purposefully. He will give them a reason for being. He will give them a mission or a task to carry out. He will do so perfectly and well in every way. God's act of calling and creating a new humanity, disciples, is an absolutely beautiful thing. And he does it just right. He has purposed it in him before the foundation of the world. Before this whole thing ever began, he started this plan. And it was not a haphazard plan that he walked out one day onto the used car lot and said, oh, I think I'll do this. No, no. He knew exactly what he was doing long before he began. And that should encourage you because that includes you. You yourself. Because you are sitting here today because you are listening to the word of God, because the Holy Spirit is active in your life, that means that God chose you. You are here specifically, effectively, beautifully, perfectly, and purposely. And I will show you that exactly according to today's text in Mark chapter 3. Let's read that text then. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along. The word's also going to be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to read it there, or you can borrow one of ours. This is Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. It says this, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from, now listen to all these places, from Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. In other words, it's multicultural. This is not one ethnic group or language or color of skin. There's people from everywhere all over the place. Jesus is God to everyone. Now, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around to him to touch him. So this is not like the pretty picture you see in the old church Sunday school wall of Jesus gently ushering in the crowds. This is a mass and a mob, and he is in danger. This is a riot, and he's got to get out. So, whenever the un- what had happened is whenever the unclean spirits saw him, just like the song said, they fell down, they fled before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that, here's three reasons. One, they might be with him, and he might send them out to two, preach, and to three, have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, and here's their names. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of the son, 
the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergus, that is, sons of thunder. What do you think those brothers were doing all the time? And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Can anyone, by the way, tell me anything about Thaddeus? Good. Nobody knows Thaddeus? Okay, well, actually, the rest of the book, the only people you hear about are the three, um, Peter, James, and John. So what that tells us is, it's okay to be an unnamed, unknown disciple of Jesus. In fact, 12, <laughs> the 12 apostles, all but three of them, are practically that. The entire church is built on no names, people you know nothing about. Then he went home and the crowd gathered so that they could not even eat. And when his family have heard of it, has your family ever said this to you? They went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. <laughs> if so, you're in good company. Mark chapter 3, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll show you three things today from this and... What I like about it, you know, some texts are much harder to outline. This one is very, very clear. You cannot get a more specific outline from, than you can from today's passage. But what I want to show you is that Jesus calls and creates, and how he does so is specifically, effectively, beautifully, and perfectly, and purposely. And I'll show you all of those things today. Beginning in verse 13, it says this. It says that Jesus went up on the mountain and, they, and, called, and called to him those whom he desired. Who did he call? He called those whom he desired. And what happened? They came. <laughs> well, here's the deal. This salvific call, if you will, this call to the disciples, this act that Jesus is doing, says very clearly, those whom he desired. In other words, this is not a general call. This is not a random call. This is a specific call. Jesus didn't just go out on the corner and stand there with a sign that says, store closing, 60% off, everybody come. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. He went to a specific person and said, you, I want you, come. And they said, okay, done. That's how it worked. It's very specific. Jesus desired these people. Notice it says desired. It didn't say he's like, okay, well, this is the best I got. I guess we'll go with it. <laughs> this was his intentional, purposeful, specific call. This is the way God works in your life. You're not an accident. It's not random biological DNA choice, anything else like that. It's Jesus. He comes to you and says, you, I want you. This is so encouraging. I don't know if you get that, but if it were me, I probably wouldn't have chosen me. I'm not working the way he did. I'm looking for the best, the brightest, the most influential, the most intelligent, the most whatever. And Jesus doesn't need that. He's already got him. I once heard a great theologian say, well, I don't even remember the quote, but I heard it. How did it go, Twyla? To be okay with our imperfection because of Christ's perfection? Was that it? Ah, that's right. It's okay to be inferior because of Christ who is superior. 
Do you know the great theologian I heard that from this morning, by the way? Twyla Ferguson. (laughs) Yeah. We were praying with some folks before our church service today, and that's what she said. I was like, I need to write that down. It's good. Don't quote that on Facebook as Pastor Jeremy, by the way. (laughs) It's not me. Um, Twyla, thank you. Jesus is superior. Look, here's the deal. He is so superior, it's okay to be inferior. And he comes to us who are inferior and says, you, I want you. I'm good enough. Yeah, you're not, but I am, and that's okay. And so what's going to happen is God could have chosen anyone he wanted, and yet for some strange reason, in his infinite, almighty, majestic, unstoppable, powerful wisdom, he chose you. I can't explain that. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know why he chose me, and yet he did. That's weird, but it's right, because God did it. He chose you. God desires you. Jesus desires you in your specific location, in your specific development, in your specific school, in your specific service, in your specific family, at your specific age, in your place on the planet, wherever you work or wherever you don't, God chose you right there. Bang. It's no mistake. It's no accident. He thought this out way before he ever stepped on to the parking lot. He said, you, I've done that. I chose that. I designed that. I call that you. These are the ones I desire. Come. And what happens? They come. They come. God chooses specifically, and then he chooses effectively. Look at the second half of the verse, underlined on perfect. He says he, he chose, he called, and they came. Why is that? Well, John 10 actually answers this question. It's, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. This is what sheep do. When the shepherd calls, they come. If you are Jesus' sheep, when he calls you, you come. That's the way Jesus works. Look, we've been following this all throughout the whole book of Mark. When Jesus speaks, evil spirits flee. When Jesus speaks, the wind goes quiet. When Jesus speaks, the lame get up and walk. When Jesus speaks, the deaf hear. When Jesus speaks, the fig tree is withered. When Jesus speaks, the dead are raised. When Jesus cries out, the temple veil is split in two. When Jesus speaks, it happens. He calls, and it occurs. It is effective. So how do we see this today? Well, let me give you an example from my own family's life. Um, my mom was here this week visiting us. It's the first time she's traveled since my dad passed away. We were super glad that she was able to step out on faith and do that. It was a big, big thing for us. And um, she was, she's, I've, I've asked her before, because I'm a preacher and I speak publicly, well, how much of your story can I share and how much can I not? And she sh- said I could share this. You know, some people have the good fortune of having Christian parents. My mom's situation was the exact opposite. And they're gone now, but I can tell you, hers was not a fun, safe, pleasant home environment. 
In fact, it was the exact opposite. In today's world, her parents probably would have gone to jail. So she grew up in this abusive home in this very dark place out in the country in in Indiana. And uh, for whatever reason, God in his infinite wisdom specifically, effectively, and purposely called her. He handpicked her out of that but very bad place and drew her to himself. The way he did that were some faithful Christian neighbors inviting her to church. Her parents would beat her before she went to church. They'd lock the door when she came home and beat her when they let her in. But she was called specifically and effectively into a new family. And so that old family began to pass away and her new family, the body of Christ, became her place of belonging. And eventually, her senior year, her parents were like, no more, you're out, be gone. And she went and stayed with a family in her church and then was directed to a Christian university um, that some of the folks in their church were attending as well. Out of that, out of that darkness, out of those ashes, beauty could arise. And so my first point is that Jesus calls specifically and effectively. There's no reason for my mom to become a Christian. The exact opposite. She should just hate the world and be mad at it and be mad at God. And yet if you met my mom, you would actually know. Funny thing is, the exact opposite is true. I kid you not. My mom is a clown. (laughs) No, really. (laughs) She goes by the name Smiley. And she goes to children's hospitals and other things, a missions trip, and she does clowning. Like she twists balloons every Thursday with a group of clowns. I do not get it. (laughs) My dad, PhD, MD, loved to be in his laboratory. My mom is a clown. (laughs) Go figure, that's why I'm weird, okay? (laughs) Why is it that everybody laughed at that one? (laughs) I don't know. I'm this extreme mix of my father and my mother. Some days I'm a clown, other days I'm a scientist. I don't know, but my, my mom literally is. She, she is a very gregarious social person. And what happened is her home, which is a very unsafe place to be, where she would never invite her friends, which was basically dark as dark as can be, all of a sudden she went from that and God specifically calls her out. And what happens is, He turns her and her home into the exact opposite. So that when I was growing up, guess what my home was like? (laughs) Party every weekend, every night. Oh yeah, youth group, come over. Mom will feed you. She did the exact opposite. I mean, talk about a pendulum swing. It went from danger, beware, don't go there, to everyone is welcome. We love you so much. Come in, eat whatever you want. Stay as long as you'd like. Totally different. This is what God does. You see, he calls specifically and effectively, and he calls beautifully and perfectly. He changes people, not for the worse, but for the better. Look at how this beauty and perfection plays out. I want to show you some more in-depth Bible stuff here. Verse 13, it says, Jesus went up to the mountain. Don't miss that. Jesus went up to the mountain. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were delivered from slavery, what happened? Moses went up to the mountain, right? Their leader, their deliverer, their savior, if you will, goes up to the mountain. He receives revelation from God. He comes back and reveals it to them. And then, as a result, they are turned into a new community. What is Jesus doing here? 
He's the deliverer. He's the new Moses. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater David. He's the better Adam. This is Jesus. He's gone up to the mountain. He's received this revelation from God. A voice from heaven comes out speaking. A dove descends. Only he hears it, but he knows who it is. And now he's going to reveal God perfectly and way better than Moses ever could. And he will call them out of darkness into his kingdom of light and begin inaugurating or initiating the kingdom. And he says, look, here I am. Here's a slide. I think I want to show you the parallelism. Moses went up on the mountain. There's the old covenant. Jesus goes up on the mountain. There's a new covenant. Behold, he makes all things new. Jesus is recreating. He's not just repurposing here. He's actually recreating. Let me show you that grammatically as well, just so I can prove my point if it's not rubbed in deep enough yet. Verse 14 says that Jesus appointed 12. Now, I have something I don't often do, but I just want to do it for fun. It's the Greek word that follows appointed is poeo, which is a Greek word often translated to do or to make. In other words, yeah, we we use the word appointed because that, you know, like communicates to English speakers. But if someone reading the original text read it, they'd say, oh, he made 12. He made them like he made the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. And he started with nothing. And all of a sudden, there's something. And he's doing that here again. This is wild. It's like, for by him and through him and to him are all things because everything holds together in him. And by him, all things were created. Here, he's creating again. He's making disciples. Originally, I had this sermon labeled filtering disciples, just having read it because there was a big group. And out of them, he pulled 12. And I thought, okay, Jesus is just selecting based on whatever. No, no, no. He's making. I was wrong. I misunderstood. And I dug deeper and I found out Jesus is creating. He's making disciples. He calls them specifically and effectively, but he creates them as well, beautifully and perfectly. What God does is good. Now, let me show you this. So, number one, Jesus Jesus calls and creates. That's, what, that's the main theme. Then I said he does so specifically and effectively. We showed you he called and they came. And then I said he creates beautifully and perfectly. And we looked at the thing with Moses and we looked at this Greek word. And we talked about my mom and said, look, Jesus does this amazing stuff. Now, having done that, he doesn't just leave it there and put it in his closet and say, okay, I'm done. I called and I created. No, he's doing it on purpose. You wouldn't do all the research on your car and then go to the lot, and then make the purchase, and then walk away, (laughs) you would get in and drive, right? Okay, hey, this feels exactly like it did when I test drove it. Maybe even better. Wow, this fits all the reviews. This adds up to the research. This makes sense. So too with Jesus. When he calls and creates specifically and effectively, beautifully and perfectly, he does so purposefully. He does so purposely. Let me show you. Verse 14 He appointed the twelve so that they might. Now, listen. So that, I've got so that highlighted and big on purpose. When you're reading your Bible, if you come across these words, it's giving you the answer. Kids, if there's a question on the test, here's where you should be looking. Why did someone do this? They did it so that. (laughs) Here's the purpose. Here's why. Your teacher would probably have a fill in the blank right there. Why did we do this? So that, boom. Here it is. Why 
did Jesus create disciples? Mark 3, 14 says, so that. Here's his reason to do it. Number one, there's three. Number one is so that they might be with him. Be with him. I think you see that underlined up there. First reason Jesus made you is to be with him. Now you're probably thinking, oh great, this is going to be so hard. I got to Oh, I'm going to have to do this and do that because i got a lot of responsibility. No, no. He's like, be with me. Like, be together. Like, when you get married, remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, you don't go to your you know, spouse and say, hey, I've got several reasons for coming after you. I'd like you to fulfill these things in order to make this happen. And if you do, I think you'll add up and therefore you can be mine. Oh. You say, I want to be with you. Because I love you. It's a relationship. The first thing and greatest thing I desire is you. Hey, cut it out. No more. Stop. Just kidding. It's good. It is good to love our spouse for who they are and not just what they do. By all means, hold your wife's hand in church. Make eyes at her. Be romantic. Kiss her. Take her out to lunch afterwards. I don't care. It's good. Jesus wants you with him. He wants you. He desires you. That's why he called you. You are wanted. You are desired regardless of anything else. It has nothing to do with marital status. It has to do with you and who you are. And Jesus wants you. And so the first reason he created you was to be with you. It's not for a function or for a task, but it's for a relationship. The, the thing we worship is not a process. It is a person. We want Jesus. Jesus wants us. That's why it's a marriage. And he's the head and we're the bride. The goal is not something, but someone. Look at the way that John, or James Edwards says it in his pillar commentary. He says, discipleship is, not, is a relationship before a task. It is a who before a what. First and foremost, the main reason Jesus made you a disciple is to be with him. Be with him. Why do we emphasize Bible study, prayer, time with God, worship, church, that sort of thing? Because you're supposed to be with him. It's a relationship. Jesus wants you to be with him. Secondly, the next reason he made you a disciple, it says to preach. Now, I'm not talking about just like I am right now, like one person sitting on a stage with other people in front of them. But the word here is to proclaim. And in verse 14, you see it underlined, I think, here. Is the, so the first reason is to be with him. That's why Jesus created you. The second reason is to preach or to proclaim. Um, here's an example. <coughs> You've probably seen this shirt or something. Maybe even have a poster on the wall. It's a quote by St. Francis of Assisi. He says, Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Oh, man, that's deep. Ooh, yeah, I got that. Good stuff. Way to go, Francis. Francis never said that. Don't ever go on like Bible trivia or Trivial Pursuit or whatever and answer St. Francis of Assisi. It's actually a made-up quote. It doesn't exist. 
the best church historians and theologians have looked for it. The closest thing they can find is a misparaphrase. Guess what? St. Francis of Assisi was actually a preacher. <laughs> he spoke a lot. He never said that. You can look on Huffington Post and you can look on the Gospel Coalition, both extremes, and you will see that they agree. St. Francis of Assisi never said that. Why? Because no red theologian ever would. It's contrary to the gospel. Everybody knows that the gospel is a specific message and the way in which God chose, for whatever reason, in his infinite wisdom to deliver the message was by words, through communication, through preaching, through proclaiming his truth. It's really cool if you do good things, but if that's all you do, they're only good things, they're not the gospel. At some point, you actually have to use words. There is a point in which it even becomes confrontational. You cannot proclaim the gospel if you don't say to someone, you've sinned. There is something we've done wrong, we've messed up, and if we never get over that, we never will. That real obstacle and barrier has to be in front of them before they can say, yes, I was wrong, I repent and come to Jesus. You can't do that by raking their leaves. You can win their trust, you can build a bridge, You can catch their attention, but you can't communicate the gospel. The gospel has to be both. Now look, it'll be words and actions here in just a minute, but right now we're talking about the words. You can't have the gospel if you don't have words. Even Jesus used words, okay? If you think you can live out the Bible better than Jesus, be my guest. But the reality is Jesus himself had to use words to communicate the gospel. And if he did, I think I did. We have to. You can't get away from the gospel without proclamation. Or you will, and it won't be the gospel. Here's the thing. Jesus is telling people the good news. That's the nature of it. That's why there's a newspaper on this artwork, because he's proclaiming it. Hear ye, hear ye. Read all about it. There's good news here. You think I'm crazy? Look at this. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I'm going to rattle through these slides, folks. So here we go. 114, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. 121, Jesus is teaching. Immediately he goes into the synagogue. This is what he does right away. Mark 139, he's preaching in their synagogues. Mark 2, 2, they were gathered together and he was preaching the word to them. Mark 10, 1, the crowds gathered and as was his custom... He taught them. Jesus using words all the time. Why? Paul answers the question, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him in whom they've never heard? And how are they here without someone preaching it to them? You have to tell them, folks. It's not enough just to be really good. Some of them might be better. Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite, Pastor Jeremy. Well, you are. And so am I. None of us get it right all the time, and so if we don't get comfortable with our own hypocrisy, we'll never say anything. There's definitely going to be an area in my life that is off, because I'm not Jesus. And even Jesus, who didn't have anything wrong, still had to proclaim. We have to use words. You've got to evangelize. If you're not sharing your faith verbally with your neighbors, you're not sharing your faith. You have to proclaim it. Number one, Jesus calls you to be with him. Number two, he calls you to proclaim him, to talk about it. It's really not that hard. 
don't have to be a theologian. Just say, hey, I like this. It's like, I, I watched a really good movie the other night. I liked it. Spent some time with Jesus the other day. I liked it. It's a good start. You have to use words. So if you're in a job that says you can't, you wait till you can. But at the end of the day, there has to be words. Jesus won. What are our words? Our words are that Jesus won. Look, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus won. Here's the victory. He became human. He took on flesh. He destroyed the works of the devil. He overcame death. He remade humanity. He will win it all in the end. And we are on his team. Jesus won. Amen? Jesus won. Now here's this tension that exists, which is really kind of tough, is we do. We say Jesus won and we mean it. I mean, we really do. We mean Jesus won. But it's like already not yet sort of thing. Like he beat the devil and we saw that. We saw it in the temptation. We'll see it in the cross and the resurrection. And yet the devil still is roaming about seeking whom he might desire. And we still struggle with our sinful flesh. And we still live in a fallen world. And bad things still happen to good people. So where's the Jesus one? Well, what happened is Jesus beat the devil. The devil knows he's beat. But the devil hasn't been permanently thrown into the pit yet. And so it's kind of his last ditch effort to do all the damage he can before the thing is over. One commentator compares it to the Battle of the Bulge. Hitler had already lost. And so he thought, well, might as well. This is a suicide mission now, and so he throws all of his efforts into the Battle of the Bulge. And the guys who are sitting there in the trenches, they had no idea that the battle's over. They're just getting pummeled, and they very well might die. That's you and me right now. Fortunately, we've received the message that the battle is over. We know we've won, but we're still hunkered down, getting pummeled. Yet, at the same time, even while we're getting pummeled, we need to be able to look over to our neighbor to our left and look to our neighbor to our right and say, man, that was a big one. Yep, but Jesus won. You bet he did. (laughs) Here we are. This is life right now in the fallen world. Jesus won. We're still on the offensive and we're guaranteed the victory, but bad things are still going to happen and it's still going to be hard. Jesus won. And so our message is the same regardless of how we feel or what we experience or what questions we have. At the end of the day, we know Jesus won. We're just not totally there yet. But the answer is still the same, Jesus won. Jesus calls, Jesus creates. He does so specifically and effectively, beautifully and perfectly, and he does so purposely. Last thing, last reason he creates disciples, it's right here, number three, says, so that they might be with, so that they might preach, and so they might cast out demons. Whoa, <laughs> what's going on here? Cast out demons, wow. Um, what, every commentator I read basically said that what's happening here in Jesus' day is a very specific individual confrontation, but what we see happening in our day is much more often institutional. So in other words, where you will see the principalities and the powers of darkness that Paul talks about is not necessarily manifesting themselves, although you might, but more than likely not to see themselves manifesting in individuals, but instead you'll see their influence in institutions. So for example, education, Pastor Chuck spoke about this a few weeks ago, how has demonic forces influenced education? What sort of things are being taught that lead away from what the Bible teaches. What about marriage? What's happening to the institution of marriage today? I'd say it's under attack, wouldn't you? 
What about government? Is government all good and all just and all true? Ours is one of the best. Many around the world are much, much worse. But yet, even in the most, uh, the greatest attempt at a republic and democracy in the history of the world, it's still got major issues. Like, for example, racism, abortion, greed, media, pornography, etc. The list goes on and on. Doesn't matter what color of skin or what side of the aisle you sit on, we all got issues. Reality is this Satan's at work. My mom's house was very dark, very, very dark. One of the things that happened in her house were Ouija boards. Uh, her parents would play with them and see spirits. Don't ever do that, it's not a game. Summoning the spirits and entangling with the occult is evil business. They are real. Do not get in. Get out if you are. Otherwise, it opens the door and invites evil into your life. Be very, very careful. There are angels and there are demons. There is God and there is Satan. Clearly, God is one and Satan is not nearly as powerful as the Holy Spirit, yet he is real and active. Stay away. Listen, we are to participate in this victory. And yet, when you're participating in a fight, you know what's going to happen. The other people are going to fight back, even if you've won. You know, because the, the person who's losing, they're, still going, they're not going down without a fight. So you've won, but you're going to get hit. And that's the way it works. Here's the reason Jesus called you to be his disciple. He made you. He specifically chose you. He effectively called you. What he's changing you from into what he is changing you to is absolutely beautiful and perfect. Can you believe that? Do you actually believe that Jesus will make you perfect? <laughs> Do I believe that? Do I actually believe? Can you believe that this silly pastor gets up every Sunday morning and it's going to be perfect? No way. That's why you giggled earlier. That's faith. But it's real. And Jesus did it because he won. If he can beat Satan, if we can pick a car, don't you think God can fix you? It is effective. It is specific. It is on purpose. It is beautiful. And it's real. This is God's call in our lives. Can you trust his plan? Do you believe it? Will you follow him? Look, he created the world. He created you. You. Someday, he will recreate the world. And someday, he will recreate us. Right now, we're in the middle of the process. But we got to believe that this one who has infinite wisdom, infinite power, infinite knowledge and infinite resources who started this thing a long, long time ago and knows way more about everything than we ever did. We've got to believe that he can actually get it done. That he who calls you will be faithful to complete his good work. Father, we thank you and praise you for your specific call in our lives. Lord, indeed, it's messy because we mess it up and others mess it up and yet you fix it. We're so thankful. 
Lord, for whatever reason, you chose us on purpose, specifically, beautifully, effectively. And Lord, we thank you. Please help us, Lord, to align our lives with your purposes in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.